What a weekend! What a weekend! What a weekend! And it will only continue. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tonight you are listening live here in a brand new world on this Monday, October 10th, 2022. It is a sunny 60 degree day where I live here in Cleveland, Ohio. And this was one of the most jam-packed sports weekends I can remember since the COVID-19 pandemic took place. We had the MLB playoffs. We had WWE Extreme Rules premium live event with the return of The Fiend, plus a whole lot of other great stuff. And then, of course, the NFL yesterday, some wild, entertaining, exciting action. We're going to break it all down today. As always, make sure to go on that little Twitter machine. Follow me on Twitter at real underscore B-World. You can follow me personally as well at Brandon Lewis underscore seven. You already know the drill by now. You can check out the Brands World Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, or Amazon Music, wherever you want to listen. Without further ado, Let's get started with the MLB playoffs because the Cleveland Guardians are advancing to the ALDS, their first playoff victory since 2017 and the first time in six years that the Cleveland baseball franchise has advanced in a round in the MLB postseason. Two exciting, low-scoring, well-pitched baseball games. Of course, game one, two to one, featuring Shane Bieber against McClanahan for Tampa Bay, a game where Siri in a solo shot for Tampa. Jose Ramirez came back and did a two-run over for Cleveland. Another well-pitched two-to-one ball game. It took just under two and a half hours to complete. And then, of course, game two. That 15-inning long-ass marathon where the Oscar Gonzalez, one swing of the bat off break Wilbur, one nothing. The Cleveland Guardians scored three runs in two games, but nonetheless, they only gave up one run in two games, and they will now advance to take on the New York Yankees in the ALDS. Another AL East Center. Another AL East foe, I almost said AL Central foe, excuse me. And another foe that the Indians have struggled against in the postseason, just like Tampa Bay. Now the Guardians will be going there. You've got Kel Quantrill guaranteed in Game 1. Tomorrow, first pitch, 7.30. Got Shane Bieber guaranteed in Game 2, going Thursday night at 7.30. Tristan McKenzie, Game 3, back at Progressive Field. We do not know the start time of that game. But I gotta say, I know there was a lot of concern about the Cleveland Guardians offense the first two games, and I understand it, right? These guys are a lot of young kids. Oscar Gonzalez, Josh Naylor, Andrea Jimenez, Stephen Kwan, Ahmed Rosario, you know, uh, Will, Will Brennan, Owen Miller, Austin Edges. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of the kids that, that are really on this ball club. But they play with such heart in the pitching. I know Nick Sandlander was just announced, went down for the season with the injury he suffered in game two. But you have the starting pitching you've got out of Shane Bieber and Drew McKenzie in game one and game two, along with the bullpen 
Aquino effort was phenomenal. Jose Ramirez made some great defensive plays, as well as Tampa did, obviously. Bases loaded, nobody on the sixth inning. You've got to be able to get a run across. That does concern me a little bit, but the fact of the matter is, these kids never know when it's a die. I said it last week on Thursday when we were previewing the series. These kids never say no. They have a no-die attitude, and they will find a way to win ball games. And if you're pitching win ball games in the postseason, you certainly have a great chance to win. Now, Cal Quadro will be going up against the great Garrett Cole of the New York Yankees in Game One. The Yankees obviously have 62 homer machine Aaron Judge, Gene Carl Stanton. Among all the great pitching and inning that they have, we know they have one of the best payrolls in the league. You know, the Guardians have one of the lowest payrolls in the league. But nonetheless, baseball is not about payrolls. I've been trying to explain this for years. It's not about the amount of money you spend on players. It's about production. It's about postseason. I know there's all these stats now about, well, if you hit a home run, you're more than likely to win the ball game. And I get that because home runs, especially more than solo shots, change ball games. But more than else, it's about good pitching, great bullpen, great starting pitching, and timely hitting. And, you know, we know that this Guardians team is so young. As I keep saying, they don't know when to die. So, listen, am I going to predict them to defeat the New York Yankees? I don't know. I know we certainly have a shot. The Yankees could certainly, you know, be be better than us. And they are the class of the, uh, of the American League, excuse me. But I do give, you know, the Cleveland Guardians a good shot because of their manager, Jerry Brangona. I think he's a way better manager than Aaron Boone. I think the Guardians have a better starting rotation and bullpen combined than the New York Yankees. I do think the Yankees have better hitting. The Yankees are a more explosive offense. But the one thing about the Yankees is they are very predicated on the home run ball. The majority of their runs this season have come on the home run ball. We know that they get in skids. And we know we usually starting pitching defeats good innings. So that's where I think Cleveland could match up really well with the New York Yankees, and I could very well see this going to a Game 5 and a very entertaining MLB playoff so far. Of course, the Phillies advance. They will take on the Atlanta Braves over to the National League, along with San Diego taking on the Los Angeles Dodgers in a critical NL West showdown in the NLDS, along with, of course, Seattle. Great comeback against Toronto. Toronto's pitching was not able to keep up with Seattle any. Toronto and Houston now will battle in the ALDS as well. Within the Guardians and the Yankees is the only non-divisional series in the divisional round, which to me is insane. I think these baseball playoffs so far, a lot of these games have been really entertaining. A lot of the road teams have won outside of Cleveland. So very entertaining postseason. We'll see what comes about. I am a little bit worried about game one. Because the Guardians have not been on the road in two weeks. They ended the final nine games of their season at Progressive Field. Plus the two postseason games against the Tampa Bay Rays. So that's what worries me a little bit about going into New York. We all know that's the shortest porch in baseball. And all it takes is one blast by Jose Ramirez and good pitching. And hopefully if you're Cleveland, you come out and you come back to Cleveland here for game three. Worst case scenario tied at one game apiece. All right, let's move on because Extreme Rules, the white rabbit, the fiend, we all know he came back. There's no spoiler alert to it. Bray Wyatt looks absolutely phenomenal at, at, the, at the end of the show. 
with all the let me in, let me in. He's got the whole world in his hands and the Firefly Funhouse stuff. That crowd reaction of holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. Tells you how much of a star the fans think of Bray Wyatt. But nonetheless, folks, Extreme Rules outside of The Fiend's return was an absolute classic of a WWE show inside of the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Huge weekend for Philadelphia in general with obviously the Eagles, the Phillies, and then Extreme Rules there at the home of the Sixers and Flyers on Saturday night. The opening match between the Brawling Brutes and Imperium we called it here on Thursday. I said that Gunther was going to win a screw job on Friday against SmackDown, against Sheamus for the Intercontinental Championship. That is exactly what happened. It looks like Gunther was going to tap, but instead, it's, you know, they made up some excuse saying he was grabbing from the ropes. Imperium came out. They ended up knocking out Sheamus. And obviously, Gunther using the Shoei to retain the, the Intercontinental Championship. So the Brawling Brutes were looking for revenge on Saturday. And boy, did they get it. Sheamus with a Celtic cross, putting Gunther for the table, which might have been one of the most extreme moments of the night. They used Shoei's. They used bars. You know, they, they used barrels. They used everything in their power to make this feel like a legit bar fight. And then obviously, the Brawling Brutes getting the upper hand on Da Vinci in the end with a broke kick from Sheamus, and it really set up. Obviously, we saw Sheamus and Gunther go toe-to-toe, Imperium had, had the early advantage before the Brawling Brutes made their comeback. It really set up. It really set up a trilogy between Sheamus and Gunther for the Intercontinental Championship, and I cannot wait for it. These two men seem perfect for each other. Sheamus feels like that, that he is on one of the biggest roles of his WWE career. His long Tender, genuine WWE career, and the only championship he's never held is, is the Intercontinental Championship. Gunther feels like a legitimate rival, and this feels like a legitimate fight that's going to happen. The trilogy between Sheamus and Gunther for the Intercontinental Championship. Next match. Now, this was a surprise to me. Ronda Rousey ended up defeating Liv Morgan and winning the SmackDown Women's Championship. And I think what this says is WWE's push on Liv Morgan. I believe it's over. I don't think Liv Morgan is a legitimate SmackDown Women's Champion. I said it from the beginning when she defeated Ronda Rousey at, uh, at Money in the Bank really to win the SmackDown Women's Championship. And then obviously the screw job at SummerSlam kind of felt like it drove down Liv Morgan's momentum. Yes, she did defeat Sh- Shayna Baszler at Clash of the Castle. But I think now what we're seeing here is Shayna Baszler is no Ronda Rousey. And that was Ronda's point. We saw Ronda make Liv Morgan pass out. Now, Morgan was even smiling after the pass out, which is a very interesting. Maybe there's a change in character there. But this kind of felt like Ronda Rousey was toying with Liv Morgan throughout the whole match, obviously using the baseball bat on the back of her ass, you know, just, just, just with those little taps, along with the kendo stick shots and, you know, wrapping uh, the judo around her and hitting her with a baseball bat there. There was a lot of brutality in this match, but Ronda Rousey really dominated. And it feels like with, the, with Ronda Rousey calling the crowd a bitch, that she is now a heel on the SmackDown side. It'll be very interesting to see who her first feud with for the SmackDown Women's Championship is. I do find it interesting. There was no Charlotte Flair return on this show. And it does seem like that Ronda and Charlotte, I doubt with Triple H in charge, they're going to go at it again. So where does Charlotte Flair land? 
on the blue brand. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she goes back to the red brand. But it does feel like the blue brand needs a lot of help. Raquel Rodriguez and John C. seem like that they're in a battle with damage control. Dakota Kai and Io Sky over the women's tag team championships. Natalia has kind of been in and out of the title picture. Aliyah has been gone, but she's more of a face. You know, Zion Lee is not really over. So I really have no idea who Ronda Rousey is going to face next for the SmackDown Women's Championship. I'm sure we'll find that out as we get closer to Crown Jewel. The next match. I thought this was the worst match of the night, to be honest. Drew McIntyre and Karrion Cross in a strap match. I don't know. This is the one match of the car that kind of fell flat for me. I thought they would use more of the strap. I thought the strap would be used more as a weapon. I don't think the strap match that pinball or submission necessarily works. I think it adds more, you know, differential and more anxiety to it when you do have to touch all four corners of the ring post. Nonetheless, this match did not start on time. As obviously, Karen Gross attacked Drew McIntyre before the match. Drew McIntyre ended up getting the upper hand. But in the end, he was pepper sprayed by Karrion Cross, who was able to club him from behind and get a pinball submission on Drew. I did not expect that. I expected McIntyre to pass out from the cross jacket submission hold. But I think because Liv Morgan passed out, they wanted to go with a different finish for, for the cross McIntyre match, which, which I understand. But to me, you're booking Karrion Cross, and Triple H has done a good job at making Karrion Cross seem legit since he returned to the WWE main roster on SmackDown a couple months ago. But every one of his matches outside of his jobber matches, he has not dominated. Scarwood Boudreaux has had to get involved and use pepper spray or use weapons or something to get the, the upper hand of the situation. So as much as Karrion Cross wants to turn back the clock and turn back time, to me, it's showing that, that that he's weak. There was a lot of interference. That was kind of my one takeaway from the card in general, is if the heels won, generally they did it with, with a lot of interference. And we know Triple H has done a good job of bringing back factions to WWE. I talked about it last week. And there's a damage control, the Judgment Day, the Brawling Brutes, Imperium. And now obviously this, this new Mexican-like faction that just joined the SmackDown roster. So I think there are a lot of groups, and there's a lot of ways with Eels here, but I would have liked to see Karrion Cross get somewhat of a clean victory over McIntyre to establish dominance. I get it for extra McIntyre, but while Roman Reigns is the undisputed Universal Champion, now that McIntyre lost to Cross, I do not know the direction they're going to go with the Scottish Warrior, who was really hot in August and September, leading up to that UK event, Clash of the Castle, and now it feels like McIntyre is falling off the card a little bit. Next match was the match that I thought would main event the show just because WWE likes to market those first ever history makings uh, as, as kind of the main event. But it was obviously the first ladder match on the main roster for a women's championship between Bianca Belair and Bailey. And this surprised me as well. The fact that, you know, no one wants a bliss, no Asuka, Bianca Belair able to KOD Bailey on a ladder and Bailey did not walk away as the Raw Women's Champion, Bianca Belair is still your champion. To me, it would have made a lot of sense if Bailey walked away with the championship damage control, would have all control on Monday Night Raw. But right now, damage control looks weak. Obviously, Bianca Belair KODing both Dakota Kai and Io Sky at the same time was sweet, along with the ladder spot I mentioned. This was not a crazy ladder match by any means. It was more of a technical ladder match, and that may have been because of Bailey's limitations, obviously coming off 
her torn ACL. Maybe she's not doing the eye flying spots that that, that kind of we all expected. But Bianca Belair came out of this very strong. She proved that she can battle anybody. She can take on anyone for the Raw Women's Championship. And so that's why I'm curious because at Money in the Bank, if you remember, Bianca was supposed to go one-on-one with Rhea Ripley for the Raw Women's Championship. Rhea Ripley, unfortunately, suffered in an injury and she could not compete at that event. If Triple H circles back to the idea that Vince McMahon originally had and Rhea Ripley and the Judgment Day are the ones that take Bianca Belair out and Rhea becomes the new Raw Women's Champion, further solidifying the Judgment Day as one of the most growing factions in, in all of, of WWE. Of course, there's also a Charlotte Flair option, as I mentioned earlier. We'll see where Charlotte Flair fits, but I think that could certainly be a possibility of Rhea Ripley taking the strap off of Bianca Belair. So I don't think it necessarily happens at Crown Jewel. It could happen at day one. The question is who steps up and face Bianca before Rhea. I'm sure we'll find that out on Monday Night Raw in the coming weeks. I think Bayley's crew will still be as dominant, but maybe Bayley doesn't need the, the Raw Women Championship. You know, maybe leading her girls as the women's tag team championships and damage control kind of becomes a three-bird possibility or maybe just an ag team where eventually, you know, maybe Bayley starts winning the championships and that's how they kind of grow this women's division. Maybe Sasha Banks and Naomi return tonight in Brooklyn on Raw and that's a great few to set up for the women's tag team championships. That's fantasy booking again. Who the hell knows? And again... Coming off the Judgment Day, because the I Quit match between Edge and Finn Bauer was brutal. It was all over the building. You had Edge throwing Finn Bauer into the into the guardrail, which I've never seen before. You know, you had a hockey stick. You had the fight on the pre-show desk, which we haven't seen in a long time. But this match really picked up steam when the Judgment Day got involved and Anne cuffed Edge to the ropes. Waiting Rey Mysterio to come down to try to help out one of his best friends. That leads to Dominic, obviously, destroying his father. And Michael Cole, who was great all night and has sounded so good over the last couple months that a lot of these changes in WWE occurred. Michael Cole screaming, somebody beat the hell out of that kid. That's your father, Dominic. Added an extra touch to the story, along with Beth Phoenix coming in and Bearing Rhea Ripley and the crowd losing their, their absolute mind, of course, before the Judgment Day were able to take advantage and knock out Beth Phoenix. And they were able to get Edge to force him to say, I quit before Rhea Ripley, deliver that concerto to Beth Phoenix anyways. Marvelous storytelling. Definitely started out slow, but it was one of the best matches. Maybe right behind the, the, the opener, the old-fashioned Donnie Brook match. To start the night, this was fantastic storytelling, and I think it will lead to Edge, Rey Mysterio, Beth Phoenix, and maybe possibly AJ Styles against the Judgment Day inside of War Games. And Survivor Series would be something to see. I think we all want to see Judgment Day get their ass kicked, and I think WWE has done a good job making Judgment Day the top heels, probably next to Seth Rollins, or maybe the top heels in all of Monday Night Raw. They look like a dominating fashion that wants to end Edge. Again, Edge is the reason why the Judgment Day was created. Now they want to eviscerate him, and Edge realizes his mistake was wrong, and they're going all out and telling the story here of Edge as the babyface getting back at his former group. 
I was a little bit surprised we all were when the turn first happened. I think we kind of thought, well, could he go back to the judgment day? But no, they're going all out now on this face turn for Edge, who, as you guys know, is my favorite wrestler of all time, one of the most popular WWE superstars of all time. And I think that they are going all out, and we all want to see the judgment day get their ass kicked. Now, the final match of the night, the fight pit, between Riddle and Seth Rollins. I got to tell you, aesthetically, I love the fight pit, and I love this spot with a pedigree up top on the second level. The stop up top on the second level. RKO up top on the second level. Obviously, the floating road down to the cage. But but Daniel Cormier, the special guest referee, really did not do it for me. You know, he really did not get involved that much. He was kind of more there, I think, to bring legitimacy to the fight. You guys know I picked Seth Rollins to win the contest because I thought that Daniel Cormier would knock out Riddle. And said Daniel Cormier really got involved and Riddle forced Seth Rollins to tap out in his environment with a triangle choke, a UFC submission move. I thought this would be more strike-based, more, more, more thrown into the cage, more brawl, more like a UFC fight. But it was more of a WWE match just inside of a different environment inside the cage. And obviously, the, the ending where, again, Riddle makes Rollins tap out to the triangle choke, it seemed really quick because, boom, there it was. Out came the fiend to those holy shit chants. And you guys have already seen, I'm sure, the video on YouTube. It has over 7 million views reportedly already. That's just estimated in the first 12 hours. It was up across all you know, WWE social media platforms. Obviously, the story coming out of this was the White Rabbit. We all knew it was Bray Wyatt. The presentation was amazing, and it's going to be exciting to see The Fiend under a Triple H-led WWE. But I thought overall this was a really good throwback, extreme rules. It really made every match seem legitimate. Every match had a different simulation, and it really made extreme rules. Once again, feel like it's true identity which is the 190-year WWE goes extreme every match as a different stipulation. That necessarily did not feel the same over the last couple of years. Obviously, last year, we only had one extreme match, that being Roman Reigns and Finn Bauer for the Universal Championship. But this year, a completely different level. Heads off to all the superstars involved. Really entertaining Saturday night in Philly, and now I cannot wait to Monday Night Raw tonight in Brooklyn. We got Johnny Gargano taking on Austin Theory. You got the Miz's birthday celebration, which was great with Dexter Loomis and Giddy, the Flyers mascot. All that they did there on Saturday night, along with, of course, Roman Reigns, Bobby Lashley, Seth Rollins for the United States Championship, and the return of D-Generation X. Plus, we'll see who the Fiend's first feud is. I cannot really guess who it is. Could be Seth Rollins. Because, of course, we, we know that Seth Rollins and The Fiend were the one that buried each other inside LNSL 2019. But it looks like Rollins will take on Lashley. He may legitimately win the United States Championship as well. You know, may, maybe uh, The Fiend goes after Riddle because Riddle is best friends with, with Randy Orton, the guy that sent Bray Wyatt away. So, who knows? It's going to be really interesting, and I cannot wait to tune into Raw tonight. And with that... With that, I know I've talked for almost 20 minutes now, and I apologize for that. A lot to cover with the Cleveland Guardians and Extreme Rules. But it is time for us to get to our Week 5 recap. 
Now, unfortunately for me, I went over five in best bets this week. I'll go over what those bets were as we get to the games. Currently, as we end into Monday Night Football tonight, I am nine and six on the money line. So if Vegas somehow upsets Kansas City, I'll be nine and seven. If Kansas City wins, we'll be ten and six on the straight up money line. Same thing as last week, which I mean ten and six is good. It's four games above five hundred. It's not spectacular though. Uh, and so, you know, that would be our best week so far this season. There's been a lot of upsets. There's been a lot of parity. It's been a wild NFL season. Matt, Matt Rule just got fired from Carolina. So that's a story to pay attention to this week. And on the year, I am 13 and 30, which is only 43% in terms of best bets. Two for five was not very good. I would have been 14 for 30 if, you know, I didn't get screwed. I got screwed really twice yesterday. We could have been four for five or even five for five. But unfortunately, you know, it just did not go our way. And 43 and 36 through five weeks at this point. Now, if Kansas City wins, we'll be 44 and 36. Through five weeks at this point, only eight games above 500, though, in my opinion, not cutting it. I'm really having a struggling year, in my opinion, barely staying over that 500 mark each week. So without further ado, let's get into it. Listen. There's not a lot to talk about with Thursday Night Football. We know Indianapolis defeated Denver 12-9. We know how brutal the game was. We know K.J. Hamler was wide open on the last play. We know Russell Wilson, seemingly injured, was dealing with the same injury Baker Mayfield dealt with last year. Regardless, this game was terrible. Indianapolis lost nine-team eyes the first play of the game. They really cannot do anything offensively. Matt Ryan seems like an, an old dinosaur, and Denver's just a mess in terms of defense, in terms of play calling, and they're going to be on Monday Night Football again next week when they take on the Chargers. Denver, four out of their first six games are on prime time. We've had a front row seat to see Nathaniel Ackett mishap after mishap after mishap. It's really embarrassing to watch Denver. They are really a hard watch. You know, obviously they lost to Seattle week one. Week two against Houston was a brutal victory. We all know how week three against San Francisco went, and their best game Week four against Vegas. Vegas outplayed them pretty much the whole game. Russell Wilson does not look great. Nathaniel Ackett does not seem like he can coach. The offensive line is brutal. Uh, their receivers are seemingly mad at their quarterback. This defense is really good. Denver's defense is really good. They get after the passer. The Colts are not very good offensively. The AFC South is a complete mess. It's probably the worst division in football, in my opinion, from top to bottom. And this was just... A brutal watch, but credit to the Colts, who after starting 0-2-1 after a, or excuse me, after starting, what was that, 1-2-1 after a tie to Houston and a brutal watch to Jacksonville. They now bounce back with Jacksonville's absolutely atrocious loss to Houston yesterday. Indianapolis has a chance next week to defeat Jacksonville and be in first place in the AFC South. That's a credit and a bounce back to Frank Reich but again, albeit in a terrible division. The New York football giants with Daniel Jones are 4-1, and they went to London, and they beat the hell out of the Packers in the second half, trailing 20-10 at halftime. Daniel Jones and the Giants really outscoring 17-0. We know the Giants obviously took the safety at the, at the end of the game just to run some time down. But the Giants, man, second half adjustments. They are really good at adjusting and going according to the plan. And Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. We've talked about this, right? Romeo Dobbs, Christian Watson, Randall Cobb, Alan Lazard. 
outside of Randall Cobb and you could say I was on a little bit. There's not a ton of experience. There's not a lot of guys that can get open down the field. It feels like a pop gun offense where there's a lot of screens and a lot of running involved with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. And even now with Aaron Rodgers, you can sack the box because, again, their, their lack of deep threats down the field. Green Bay does not feel the same. And the Giants, man, we all really don't know how legitimate they've been, right? Because they lost to Cooper Rush and the Cowboys. The wins they did have. They beat Carolina, who just fired their coach. They beat the Bears, who looked absolutely terrible. Uh, week one and week two, Tennessee looked absolutely brutal, and they don't look that great either. You know, but nonetheless, the Giants are 4-1, and Green Bay has not looked as sharp the first five weeks of the season. They're a very on-script team. Matt LaFour and the Green Bay Packers, they come out firing. They do really well in the first half. They're really bad at making adjustments. Speaking of making adjustments, the Browns have no adjustments. Uh, they cannot stop the run. It doesn't matter if Miles Garrett's in there or Jadavian Clowney's in there. Justin Herbert and the LA Chargers escaped Cleveland with a 30-28 victory. The spread here was free, so if you bet the Browns, congratulations, you covered. Browns should have won the game. Cade York missed two field goals. That's disappearing six points. Browns could have won the game 34 to 30. I thought Jacoby Brissett arguably played his best game as a Cleveland Brown. I thought he was poised in the pocket and I thought he made really good decisions. I thought Amari Cooper had a really good game like he always does at home. But the fact of the matter is Austin Eckward, Jackson Jackson and those Chargers running backs just absolutely tore the Browns apart. The Chargers controlled the clock and the Browns just traded for Deion Jones who's been on IR for the Falcons. Sounds like he could come back in a couple weeks. But I honestly have no idea if that is going to help. We, we saw with Anthony Walker, who's like Deion Jones, a very smart linebacker. We saw with even Anthony Walker in there, the Browns defense struggle. They struggle in pass defense. They struggle in run defense. You can move the ball on the Browns. Now, Brandon Staley went for it on fourth and two. Did not get it. Would set up the potential game-winning field goal by Cade York. And I know what people are saying. He's on his own 43-yard line. He's just punt the football and make the backup quarterback drive down the field. My thinking is you have two yards to win the game. You can go zone read. You can spread them out. You can go inside zone. But you got to spread it out. you got to make a quick easy. Whether it's a mesh or something, you cannot throw a backside slant, though. That is not an easy throw, especially away from the defender. So I like the aggressive mentality and going for it, but I did not love the play call that Brandon Staley and the Chargers ran. Fortunately for them, though, they got away with it. And you know what? The Chargers, man, good teams find a way to win ball games. Bad teams find a way to lose ball games. And uh, the Browns are a bad football team because they just keep finding ways to lose ball games. Gabriel Davis, 98-yard touchdown. Then he takes an incredible pass away from Minka Fitzpatrick. Josh Allen had nearly 400 yards in the first half. Everybody said bet Pittsburgh plus 14. I said, uh-uh, not so fast. I thought Buffalo was going to kill Pittsburgh. They absolutely did that, winning it 38-3. to This game wasn't even a contest from that first third and 10, the 98-yard touchdown to Gabriel Davis. You kind of knew the game was over. Kenny Pickett does not look like he is ready, in my opinion to be the starting quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, but they have no choice because Mitch Trubisky's been terrible. Now you can't bounce back and forth between Mitch and Kenny. You have to kind of like Kenny Pickett ride 
And this is what I was saying about the Steelers going into this season. It's why it's going to be by far the worst team in the in the AFC North if Deshaun Watson was a, was available to play for the Cleveland Browns. And it's because I thought early in the season their schedule was really hard. You know, they obviously put Buffalo yesterday. They got Tampa. They got Philly in a couple of weeks. And I did not think that offensively they have very many weapons. I think Deontay Johnson, quite frankly, is the number two or number three wide receiver. Same thing with Chase Claypool. George Pickens is a rookie. He's developing, but we truly don't know how good he is yet. Firemuth is a nice tight end. He's not anything special. And their offensive line is struggle after struggle after struggle. In my opinion, this Steelers offense is one of the worst in the league. They're very predictable. They run a lot with 19 lines. You can stack the box. And Buffalo, missing a lot of their defensive players, tore apart the Steelers yesterday with a good coach of Mike Tomlin. But I don't think he senses the, the urgency of offensive football in 2022. I do think the Pittsburgh Steelers are in trouble. They have lost four in a row. And they could arguably be 0-5. They're a block kick away from being 0-5. Of course, that one win week one in Cincinnati. But the Steelers, they are in trouble. And it feels like Mike Tomlin is going to get his first losing season in his career as the Steelers coach. Which, quite frankly, I don't really care about. Because, let's face it, the Steelers have not been legitimate contenders in years. Now, the Jets. The Jets are something, man. The Jets. Defeating the Dolphins 40-17, the New York Jets. Now, the Dolphins will run their third-string quarterback, Skylar Thompson, after Teddy Bridgewater got a concussion early in that ball game. And, you know, their passing offense with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, Mike Kosaki, those weapons really got affected. They used Green Moser well out of the backfield. Jets have some wards offensively. You know, they have some nice pieces and brings all Michael Carter running back, Elijah Moore, Garrett Wilson, out-wide receiver. You know, I said it. I thought the Jets did a really good draft. Jermaine Johnson, Sauce Gardner, you know, I get Garrett Wilson, the rookie out of Ohio State. So I thought that they nailed their draft over Brees Hall, the running back in the second round, to add more pieces offensively. My concern with the Jets was, could Zach Wilson play? And so far, man, Robert Sowell, we were all making fun out of him after week one when they got destroyed by the Ravens. Robert Sowell said he was taking receipts. And then with Joe Flacco, they go down and they get a comeback victory against the Browns. And it kind of feels like that it has sparked the Jets this season. Ever since that moment, they have played well. We know Cincinnati bounced back against them week three. The Jets were able to bounce back, defeat the Steelers in week four, then come back and defeat the Dolphins at home in week five. The New York Jets are 3-2. The New York Giants are 4-1. It's an absolute credit because... I did not think the New York Giants were going to win three games all season long. And here they are going into week six, and they have four wins already. All right, well, the Patriots, that's when we destroyed the Lions. Um, and we may be wrong on Dan Campbell. Listen, the Lions are one and four. Their only win is against a bad, and I mean a bad, Washington Commanders team. And that offense and Carson Wentz looked absolutely abysmal yesterday against the Tennessee Titans. I am concerned about the Detroit Lions. Their offense is great. We know how well Jared Goff plays in a dome. We know Mont St. Brown was limited on a pitch count yesterday. But when the Lions are not in a dome, right? When they have, you know, when they're outdoors in New England, they look like a completely different team. And Aaron Glenn and that defense is not cutting it. That defense is really struggling. And Bailey Zappi in New England 
They won't go with the better coach team yesterday. They obviously got a defensive score at a point where the Lions should have kicked a field goal where it was six to three. They get a strip sack. They go take the lead 13 to nothing and really the floodgates were open from there. The Lions are just not, they, they should be a better team, I should say, than what they are, really. I mean, T.J. Hawkinson, Amon St. Brown, Craig Reynolds, Josh Reynolds, DeAndre Swift, who's been out, obviously, Jamal Williams. They have the pieces offensively, and they cannot put together a single point yesterday against the New England Patriots. I'd be really concerned if I was a Detroit Lions fan. Speaking of being concerned, Trevor Lawrence, the last two weeks after Jacksonville got off to such an odd start, really struggled. Texans obviously won the game 13-6 to in a defensive battle where it was 6-6 for most of the ballgame. And again, Davis Mills does not play well on the road, but Davis Mills and the Houston Texans find a way to win. I said I thought the line at seven points for a divisional game was a really weird game. And the fact of the matter is the Houston Texans were able to take advantage. They got the win over a struggling Jacksonville franchise, who we were all impressed after they took apart the Chargers. Week three in L.A. Well, now they have lost two straight. And again, the Houston Texans with one win. They are still afloat. They were the last team to get a victory in the NFL. Nobody will go winless in the NFL this year. And it's already week five. Amazing to see, again, the parity in this week. Well, Tennessee, after starting 0-2, and me and my good friend Gabe Carrera, and a lot of people were calling for the jobs of Ryan Tannehill and saying, put him a week, Willis. How about the Tennessee Titans, right? Defeating the Washington Commanders 21-17. Derek Henry got back on track. Carson Wentz could have won the ball game, could have run a touchdown at the goal line, and it was intercepted. And it's been the story of the Washington Commanders season. So close, yet so far, Carson Wentz turning the ball over, holding on to the football too long, and Washington's defense, again, Defensive-minded coach and Ron Rivera not sensing the urgency of the offense in today's National Football League. I think Washington needs a fresh start, right? We all know their owner is terrible in Dan Schneider. We know that they need a new owner. We know that they need a new general manager. We know they need a new head coach. We know that they need a new quarterback. I just think the Washington Commanders, even though they have a new name, they are an outdated franchise. They are more based on defense. Then offense, and they may have the pieces on offense, obviously with Scary Terry and John Dotson. But Washington is not look like a well-oiled machine offensively. Tennessee is not great either, right? Ryan Tannehill struggled yesterday, but with Mike Vrabel, with that leadership, they were able to get the job done and get the victory. Next game, you've got the Seahawks, who had four touchdowns at HML. Not much to say on that. Saints end up getting a victory. Two really bad teams put on a really good game, actually, between the Seahawks and the Saints. I don't know how good Seattle is. Their defense seems to struggle. Pacino Smith looks confident offensively. And the Saints, with Andy Doan, have moved the ball, even without Michael Thomas. Alvin Kamara is back. And again, they used to want to take the mill yesterday. I just don't understand why you just don't blitz. You know, nearly 10, 9, 11 people at Taysom Mill force him to make the tackle. Because to me, that's all the Saints really have offensively. Tampa Bay ended up defeating Atlanta 21 15. And again, that we got screwed with on best bets. We hit Tampa Bay minus eight and a half. Atlanta was able to get the backdoor cover. And obviously, the running the passer call was terrible on Tom Brady. 
But nonetheless, Tampa Bay able to escape with the victory. Minnesota defeats Chicago 29-22. San Francisco defeated Carolina 37-15. Obviously, Matt Moore's time has come to an end in Carolina. The, the Panthers just look terrible, right? They, they look like the worst team in football. Detroit, uh, Dallas defeats the Rams 22-10. Philly defeats Arizona 20-17. And Baltimore defeats Cincinnati 19-17. A lot of close games yesterday. A lot of back and forth, a lot of stuff that just came down to field goals. And obviously, I think the better team won in all three of those games. So that'll be it for today's Brands World. I thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you back on Thursday. We preview the NFL in week six, along with all of the MLB playoff action. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. It's been a while today. I dug for 45 straight minutes, so I'm going to go in and let my voice rust. And I'll see you guys next time. Peace.